what is regular, what is every day, what is most frequent. That's information warfare. Don't try to make perfect decisions, but try to perfect as a verb, decision making. Information warfare is just like that, except that radiation will eventually dissipate. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center with an Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Mr. Duan Lee, Senior Director of Research and Strategy at Zignal Labs, about information warfare, Chinese and Russian influence, and maintaining democracy. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Okay, we're here with Duan Lee. Duan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join this conversation. We're excited to have you. So let's jump right into the first question about your background. So you've been a researcher, an investigator, and a professor across such a wide range of areas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and what led you to the work you're doing now? Yeah, uh, let me share some you know, personal anecdotes. I was born in South Korea, and um, you know, because I think this is such an important occasion for me, I'm gonna share something about my personal life that uh, even my closest friends perhaps are not entirely aware of. Back in the day when I was in college and that was in South Korea, I was a philosophy major uh, who spent a lot more time out on the street than in the classroom uh, because I was a very committed uh, student activist uh, promoting democracy and human rights. And back then, South Korea was not a real uh, democratic uh, country. So uh, when I was able to graduate uh, with luck, um, I came to the States to go to graduate school because I wanted to study uh, the history and uh, the theory of social revolution a little more in depth. And uh, I went to the University of Chicago. Uh, I majored in uh, political science. And my training was mostly twofold. On one hand, uh, I really focused on understanding how external state actors exploit organic political movements as a cost-effective tool of foreign policy. So typically, you know, we call it proxy warfare. Well, you know, some even call it unconventional warfare. So that has been the substantive area of my uh, training. Uh, in terms of methodology, I use a lot of quantitative modeling and uh, computer simulation to understand how perhaps propaganda spreads over time, right? And how different movements are uh, either you know, diffuse or wither away. And because of my training, when I got my first teaching job at the Naval Postgraduate School, um, I started teaching essentially irregular warfare, right? because proxy warfare, unconventional warfare, they all fall under this you know, large umbrella term. And because of my quantitative training, uh, I ended up uh, developing and executing quite a few federally funded projects on um, illuminating and mapping both um, violent extremist networks and perhaps proxy networks that represent 
the Chinese Communist Party's interests, right? Or the Kremlin's strategic interests um, in contested areas. So as you can imagine, um, you know, this has been sort of you know, long journey uh, of my professional life. And, uh, you know, we used to call it, you know, propaganda, but as you can imagine, uh, there is just a lot of policy interest in how we combat, you know, foreign disinformation. Uh, so that is essentially what keeps me wide awake at night these days. And I feel like, you know, my, you know, this, you know, a circle of wonderfully um, unintentional accidents is coming to a full close, right? So it's, it's becoming an interesting uh, feedback loop and I've, I've come to meet and work with a lot of amazing people um, and, and current company uh, included. There's a lot of foreshadowing to our quick fire questions that we're going to get to at the end of the interview. So I, I, I like what you're throwing out there already. And I want to I um, focus in on the disinformation and the propaganda pieces that you were talking about. So you've done a lot of research on China and what the CCP has been doing in terms of revisionism and disinformation. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit and expand on that for us? Yeah. So um, it's like, you know, I'm going to give you two sort of, you know, uh, stories. One is very personal. The other one is a bit more uh, professional. So personally, this has been an important area of intense curiosity for me because, um, you know, as an activist or as a student of social revolution, you are always looking for the most cost-effective way of, you know, building consensus and being able to do it, you know, across, you know, vast uh, amounts of space. So typically when we try to affect, you know, an enemy or an audience far away, uh, we use this form of warfare called remote warfare. Imagine that you are sending a drone to take out, you know, a hostile uh, element. Uh, to me, you know, my personal interest in disinformation, especially the kind that we see from the CCP is that it's just an incredibly effective strategic tool to reach and touch, you know, target audiences, you know, thousands of miles away. And, um, you know, and this is where sort of, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning to the professional side of my narrative, and that is, so I've long supported First Special Forces Group, which is very much aligned with um, the Indo uh, PACOM AOR, right? And by extension, I work very closely with SAPAC and some of our partner nations are in the same region. And uh, this is nothing new to a lot of people who have worked in this region. And for example, you know, I've worked very closely with SACO, especially with uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons program and so and so on and so forth, right? To them, you know, this information is just a tool you have in your toolbox. You know, there is nothing irregular about this. There is nothing special about this. So we tend to think that this is something really like exotic, right? Something highly irregular, but perhaps you know, requires some kind of special like knowledge or techniques. No. You know, if you look at how, you know, the Kim family has sustained a regime in North Korea, it's not because it has a great economy, right? It's not because it has a great constitution with, you know, great ideals that the rest of the world aspires to. It's just propaganda. So to me, like, you know, this has been going on, like, you know, for a long while. It really coincides with 
Xi Jinping's succession in the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's something that we failed to uh, acknowledge quite a bit. So you mentioned that um, obviously disinformation is just a form of propaganda and it's been around forever and has been used forever. But how do you think China has changed in, say, the last 10 to 15 years in their approach to information and influence on the rest of the world? In a way, I'm really glad that disinformation is all the rage in 2020. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic uh, has really accentuated the, the threat vector surface of disinformation. But just to like, you know, share some history, right? So let's just, you know, go back about 10 years, as you put it. So Xi Jinping became the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2012, about like, you know, eight, nine years ago, right? And one thing that, you know, you can always look up is this new directive that came out of the, uh, the standing uh, Politburo uh, within the Chinese Communist Party. And it's called, you know, the communique on the current state of the ideological sphere. And it comes out in 13. Initially, it was a secret document, but now, you know, we actually have translated, you know, versions of this communique, right? So if you just Google the title, again, I'll, I'll state it again, the current state of the ideological sphere that came out in 2013. I think, you know, um, especially among national security professionals, uh, we call it document nine because it's, you know, essentially the ninth, like, you know, uh, declassified documents, you know, from the Chinese Communist Party. And it's really interesting because as soon as Xi Jinping becomes general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, and then essentially they come out with these directives. And essentially it states, you know, three things, right? Uh, first one is that when people talk about civil society or open society, essentially they're trying to undermine the foundations of the Chinese Communist Party. So essentially Xi is, you know, planting his flag, right? So this is how we're gonna fight. This is how we're gonna undermine you know, the perception of Pax Americana, right? Uh, number two, essentially, you know, C declares that, you know, the party will maintain positive control of all media. Remember, like, you know, when Deng Xiaoping was going through some reform policies, you know, we tend to think that, you know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been always this closed system. But, you know, in the early 2000s, there was some genuine, you know, political reform efforts. And, you know, see essentially like, you know, nope, we're not gonna do any more of that. The party will maintain positive control of all media. And number three is really interesting because what it says is that we're gonna essentially professionalize, you know, propaganda, right? Or information operations. And this really coincides with a lot more funds essentially going to this very unique organization we call the United Front Work Department. So a lot of times you'll hear about the Confucius Institute, which is going through some major rebranding right now. And you're gonna hear about perhaps like, you know, Chinese scholars and students associations, right? And so on and so forth. So these are all essentially civilian tentacles that report to the UFWD, United Front Work Department, right? And, you know, whenever you see essentially, you know, Chinese like, you know, embassies or consulates making statements to suppress perhaps, you know, critical like, you know, scholarly work against the Belt and Road Initiative. And if you essentially follow the money, follow the, you know, the trail, right? You will find 
the UW, UFW did. So it really, you know, Xi Jinping, I mean, a lot of times people will ask me, hey, is it really inevitable? Do you think we could have a better relationship with China right now? I think we could, because she was essentially this, like, you know, masterful, like, you know, product of the party's evolution, right? And, and um, you know, so if you really want to understand the evolution of CCP propaganda, right, you know, I really encourage your listeners to look into the United Front Work Department. I also want to highlight two other organizations for your listeners to pay attention to, and that is the Ministry of State Security. So I told you about, you know, uh, this communique where the party decided to take positive control of all media. So that's you know, what we call uh, internal censorship. So there is some like in you know, a confusion about how the CCP exercises censorship. I think most people are very you know familiar with the Great Firewall, essentially cutting external information from coming into the mainland. Uh, that is one aspect. The other aspect that I want your listeners to pay attention to is the Golden Shield regime. That's the internal censorship regime, and that belongs to the Ministry of you know, State Security. There is another entity that all national security professionals should pay close attention to, and that is the PLA, uh, People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Forces. It's kind of like our own NSA, but essentially they are responsible for you know, cyber threats and attacks. So if you want to understand how the CCP conducts you know, holistic information warfare, these are some of the entities that I want your listeners to pay attention to. Duan, thanks for that answer. And thanks for, uh, you know, kind of focusing our listeners in on those organizations to check out. I want to kind of expand uh, a little bit on China here. Do you see their efforts in concert with or in coordination with Russia, or are they more divergent from what Russia is doing? So that's a really interesting question, because uh, just earlier this year, I was very fortunate enough to organize a webinar with the one and only uh, Peter W. Singer. Um, you know, in my mind, the best futurist that we have in our generation, right? I actually discussed this issue like in April, right? And uh, some of the questions that came to that webinar was, hey, do you see the CCP and the Kremlin essentially colluding together to undermine you know, our influence overseas and also to essentially like, you know, um, undermine our political stability in our own backyard. And, and you know, that was like only six months ago. And this was, you know, uh, a very controversial conversation. You know, there was no consensus about whether they were just, you know, uh, doing things together without coordinating or whether they were colluding, right? Or they were like, you know, really explicitly like cooperating, right? So there can be different levels of partnership. My position is that, you know, this is the year where they are learning how to essentially reinforce each other's information, you know, warfare campaigns. And, and let me give you some data points to substantiate my prediction. Last week, the PLA and the Russian Federation's armed forces declared that essentially they will work together. They made it very public and very explicit. And essentially, they will not coordinate, they will cooperate in terms of ballistic missile system development as well as exercises. And to me, like, you know, that is a clear indication that there is a heightened level of 
coordination, if not cooperation between the CCP and the Kremlin. So that is one data point that we need to continue to track. In July, which was like three months ago now, right? Chinese, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you know, spokesperson, you know, Hua Chongying and her Russian counterpart, you know, Marie's, you know, Zakharova also came out and made a bilateral statement that, you know, just, just brace yourself, that the CCP and the Kremlin will work together to combat disinformation that is undermining their own political stability. These statements, you know, they used to be very like, you know, vague or very like, you know, uh, indirect. And I've never seen the CCP or the Kremlin coming out with such overt and explicit statements about doing things against us, right? And uh, we are already seeing some of these indications, uh, like, you know, uh, the size of essentially armed forces they send to each other military exercises, right? That has been creeping up dramatically. So to me, you know, this is something that we really need to pay attention to, right? And let me just, you know, spend a couple of minutes to talk about this, and I promise you I'll be concise. And that is, I don't think this is anything abnormal. If you think about the logic of balance of power, you know, it makes sense for them to essentially like, you know, form an alliance against us because, you know, we still are the most powerful, you know, our nation on this planet. Now, descriptively, descriptively, it makes sense, right? Because that's what they're supposed to do to compete against us. Of course, I cannot endorse the statement from a prescriptive viewpoint. And that is, you know, uh, I've been trying to like, you know, understand our national security strategy. You know, I've been trying to do, I'm trying to be a good citizen to support that, you know, strategy. One thing that we do need to sort of, you know, think about is how do we essentially shape what we call great power competition to ensure that, you know, we can prevent this pollution from maturing. So to me, that is a critical element of our national security. And that's what I call the strategy of implosion. So we don't have to fight them alone if they essentially start fighting each other. So we, we really need to revisit this notion of strategic implosion to facilitate, to economize how we go about what we call great power competition. No, absolutely. And in almost a little bit of a different direction, you know, one of the things that's been going on a lot lately, especially over the last, you know, three to four years, uh, is a crackdown on what we've seen in terms of technology theft and infiltration of American academic and research institutions um, by the CCP. And so with all this disinformation and things we think about in terms of revisionism, what role do you really think that plays in it, that, that technology transfer and them coming onto these campuses? Yeah, so that's a really tough question. Um, again, like, you know, I always try to separate, you know, separate history from practice, right? Because when it comes to the practice of national security, I want to be a maximalist. I want nothing but what is best for our nation. History is a different matter because like, you know, it tends to be very like, you know, uh, agnostic. 
So let me share a couple of data points, uh, but I wanna make sure that, you know, this is just part of this history, right? Not, not sort of, you know, a prescriptive position. You know, historically, you know, this is what we call strategic imitation or strategic mimicking. And, and frankly, you know, this is very common in great power competition. And, and let me give an example. So like, you know, when we were able to declare independence from the British empire, uh, we essentially sent a lot of industrial spies to the UK to smuggle uh, advanced industrial machinery from the UK because back then the UK was the center of innovation. So in fact, the London government essentially declared a trade war on us. And then they essentially started essentially arresting people who are helping Americans smuggle their advanced technology. And uh, like, you know, this is how we were able to overtake the UK, you know, within perhaps a century. Because if you look at the GDP growth between the UK and the US, essentially we just grow so fast in the early part of the 19th century, right? Right after our revolution. And we essentially, you know, take them, you know, we, we surpass them, you know, perhaps in the late, like, you know, nine, you know, 1890s and so on and so forth. So we use a lot of this, like, you know, strategic imitation to grow faster. Now, I'm not saying this is okay right now. Again, this that's the history. So let me move on to the strategic side, the national security side of the equation. I think there is something that I really want to highlight, and that is yes, strategic imitation plays a critical role, and and we can essentially clamp it down. But to me, how to do it without infringing on our civil liberties is a really key important policy conversation to have. And the reason being, you know, we tend to over-rotate sometimes, right? If you think about essentially like, you know, the expansion of the Soviet bloc in the 50s and 60s, right? You know, we, we had this McCarthy era that kind of like, you know, went against our ideals. Even during, you know, World War II, we had the Japanese American internment camps. So clamping down is not hard. Doing so without infringing on our civil liberty, that's the hard part. And I do think that we are superior, much superior to innovation. And I'll come back to this point very soon, that is open society is much better at motivating creativity and innovation. I think, you know, the data is there, the history is there. It is an undeniable, you know, proposition. So we just need to have a little bit more faith in our strengths. And to me, the question is like public oversight and integration. And, and in terms of like, you know, pure technology and innovation, we are still like, you know, miles ahead of the CCP as far as I'm concerned. So jumping into, you've covered, you know, so much in, in terms of, um, disinformation and, and what's happening. I followed all your work and it runs quite a gamut. And so the question I have is, what are we missing? What are, what are the Army and the DOD, what are we not thinking about or paying enough attention to when it comes to, to disinformation and to CCP? Look, thank you for asking me that question. I, I guess I'm going to turn a lot of my friends into enemies when I answer that question because I'm going to say some harsh things. And uh, like, you know, these are some, you know, I'm going to slaughter some, you know, sacred cows, you know, today, right? 
and I'm going to butcher them really hard, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, to me, like, you know, I'm going to start with something that is very pragmatic and, and that is, you know, what we call like, you know, commander prioritization. We, we have the most mature military uh, force in the world, right? And, and we have this, you know, great, like, you know, integrated, you know, relationship between military and civilian leadership. Uh, I think one thing I do really want to encourage, especially, you know, our military, like, you know, leaders is commander prioritization. And, and that it is, there is nothing irregular about information warfare. For example, how often do you get to, like, you know, use our, like, you know, ballistic missiles for our national security? How often do we, like, you know, let's make it very tactical. How often do we even shoot our M4 rifles? Not very often. How often do you face threats from the information environment every single day? So if you want to think about what is really regular and persistent, right? And what is highly irregular and highly infrequent, you know, the answer is very clear. What is regular? What is every day? What is most frequent? That's information warfare. So I really want to encourage our military leaders to essentially just drop the adjective irregular from information warfare. There is absolutely nothing irregular about information warfare. And, and you know, if you go back to, let's just say like, you know, let's go back to the beginning of warfare. If you think about MILDAC, right? Military deception has always been an integral part of warfare. Uh, Genghis Khan, you know, coined, you know, scorched earth. But that was essentially a psychological campaign to essentially make everyone afraid of opposing his army. So again, like, you know, commander prioritization, you know, just understand that information warfare is what we fight. That's how we compete every single day, whether we are in DTAC or ODTAC environment. So no matter where we are, this is what we fight every single day. I don't think you can find anything more regular than information warfare, right? Uh, number two, um, you know, let's embrace some doctrine. So you guys know this, like, you know, uh, JDC2, uh, right? Uh, joint all domain uh, command and control. And uh, we have this doctrine. We have this concept. The idea here is that we just have to walk the walk. And I don't think this is too complicated, right? Because even in the national security strategy and national defense strategy, we do state that information statecraft is what is at stake in terms of, you know, outcompeting our adversaries right now. And this is nothing like, you know, like, you know, complicated. So I'll give you a very tactical example. So, you know, how does it really like, you know, pan out? Right now, there are a lot of, you know, bilateral military exercises taking place all over the world. And, uh, you know, this has been one of the tools we use to maintain our like, you know, mill-to-mill partnerships. But we're not alone in this space. The PLA is courting the same countries, sometimes with better, like, you know, perks. Perhaps they will build better training camps for their, like, you know, partner nations or host nations. Are we tracking, you know, how these competing exercises are being perceived by the local populations? Are we having any effects on perhaps like, you know, improving our diplomatic ties with certain countries that seems to be in highly contested areas. I'm thinking about the Philippines. I'm thinking about perhaps Eastern European countries, the Balkans and so on and so forth. 
Technically, these things are all entirely possible. These are very mature solutions, but we're not essentially integrating some of this commonly available information operations tools into our routine sort of, you know, military activities. And uh, number three, we, we, we tend to focus too much on making like perfect decisions, right? When it comes to like military decision-making, we want to have as much intelligence as possible, as much information as possible, right? And we always try to make perfect decisions. And to me, that is entirely wrong approach because, you know, what I really want to encourage, you know, so, so one you know, example I always use is essentially Google X. And Google X is something that, you know, I encourage military innovators uh, to study uh, in depth. The reason being, is really about rapid experimentation. Don't try to make perfect decisions, but try to perfect as a verb, decision-making. And to me, that sounds very like, you know, close to each other, but there is like, you know, so much difference in my mind, right? And that is perfect decision-making through rapid experimentation. So instead of trying to find the perfect tools to compete, against the CCP and the Kremlin, iterate fast, right? Fail fast, learn fast, and then institutionalize the learning and then rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And to me, this is the most important mindset change that I wanna encourage our military innovators to think hard about. That's a fantastic answer, which largely answered the question I had, which was how are we gonna fight China in this information war? So another question that I have is, you know, you've done all this research and I, I really love um, the background that you have from the work that you've done at Zignal to the Naval Postgraduate School and all over. So you're talking to future researchers and analysts right now. They're in high school and middle school, maybe even like Matt and I's kids in elementary school right now. So what advice would you give them? Why would they want to work in this field? Let me unpack that question into two separate like, you know, sections, uh, because that's what recovering academics do. Uh, so like, you know, uh, first I want to talk about what we can help them with, you know, how we can mentor them. And number two is essentially how, you know, what I would encourage them to be better at than us, than our generation. So let me start with, you know, what I think we should mentor them with first. And to me, like, you know, we really need to rethink about data literacy. And, and this is not just, you know, media awareness or digital uh, literacy, right? To me, this is really about you know, encouraging them to debate and discuss the fundamental relationship between data and civil liberties. And that is, you know, how do we essentially like, you know, shape this relationship, right? And I have two young kids, so this is a, a very like an important topic to me, right? And, and every day I'm just amazed how quickly they process and consume information, a lot more than I can. So the volume is there, but there is not a lot of introspection about the relationship between our society and essentially data. So that is something that really want to encourage and like, you know, mentor, like, you know, young kids to get into. And also, you know, what is really different this year is, you know, the political nature of, you know, information or what we call essentially like, you know, um, open source intelligence, right? So right now, you know, perhaps like, you know, we used to be able to keep this fight, you know, away from our homeland, right? 
but now is in our backyard, right? You know, it, it affects some of the most important, you know, um, aspects of our life, like election, right? Uh, like in you know, a media, like you know, integrity and so on and so forth. So, you know, it is never comfortable to talk about politics with my kids or you know other kids, but you know we have to do that. And I think this is some of the things that we need to essentially overcome. And in terms of what I want to tell them to like you know uh, get into study what become more specialized in, I want to go back to what we call the philosophy of science, right? And that is the principles of how we acquire knowledge or how we do you know, research writ large, right? And, and because think about you know, AI, right? You know, there is there are a lot of you know, nebulous uh, like you know conceptualizations about what AI is. To me, AI is just distributed decision making trained by large volumes of you know, data. So essentially, it's a different paradigm of you know, coding decision algorithms. That is as simple as that, right? Now, as you can imagine, if you feed garbage, right, then you will have garbage decision you know, algorithms. So if you don't understand selection bias, if you don't understand like, you know, confirmation bias, or perhaps even different psychological aspects of information, then we end up producing garbage AI. And to me, this is why we need to go back to the philosophy of science, right? The principles of acquiring knowledge and apply the same principles when it comes to machine learning. And that is examine the representativeness of the training data you're using. Because if the training data is flawed, if it's skewed, they can have really large impacts on people who may use those algorithms. So to me, that is really important. Related to this, ethics, ethics, ethics. Why? Because now, you know, um, AI is not limited to perhaps technology, right? You know, it's affecting all aspects of our life. So again, I think this is something very fundamental, right? So we need to revisit ethics. And uh, if you have the philosophy of science, and if you have ethics, then you have critical thinking. So now you are critically evaluating whatever information you're consuming, or you're critically evaluating whatever algorithms you're using for your business, for national security, and whatnot. So these are some of the foundational bodies of knowledge I would encourage. And then plus one is essentially, I mean, I'm going to sound like a total nerd, right? Because that's what I am. Mathematics, just fundamental mathematics. Why? Because in a nutshell, to me, mathematics is just abstract logic. And I'll tell you what, you know, a lot of my friends, right? And, and you know, formal uh, students always ask me, hey, I want to get into data science. I want to get into like, you know, you know, information warfare using big data. We don't even use the term big data anymore. And so what should I learn? And then they say, oh, should I learn like, you know, JSON? Should I learn like, you know, Python, right? What, what should I learn, right? And I tell them, Programming languages will change, right? Even programming paradigms will change, but abstract logic will never change. If you have that down, right? Then, you know, it's a lot easier to go from one programming language 
to another and so on and so forth because you got the logic trace always, you know, hardwired in the back of your head. And to me, that is just what mathematics does. So again, the philosophy of science, ethics, critical thinking, and math, math, math. And this is what makes me a very unpopular dad in my household. Yeah, a lot of, lot of great points in there. And you, you brought up a lot of what you could term universal truths. I mean, uh, the garbage in, garbage out principle, I think, um, is especially important right now because it doesn't just apply to machine learning or AI. I mean, internally, when we ingest information, we see you know, on the internet or on Facebook or whatever, that same principle applies. If we take in some, you know, garbage information, we're just going to regurgitate or have opinions based on that faulty information. Um, and I can't comment on the math. My political science degree won't allow me to go that far. So I'm a political scientist too, Matt. So like, you know, um, I just went to the wrong school where like, you know, I had to take a lot of stats and probability theories uh, in my first year. So, But but the underlying principles there, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Math is rules-based. The logic is not going to change. That's that's another universal truth. So let's, let's transition from these hard questions and let's go into what we call our rapid fire questions that I alluded to in the first set, because um, you kind of gave some, in parts of your answers earlier, you were, you were pulling some of these questions out already. So the first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Deepfakes. I, I think there are like, you know, uh, good detection algorithms, right? Uh, and I'll keep it very, you know, uh, concise. To me, what keeps me really scared at night is the gap, what we call strategic latency, right? Between offense and defense. So why is information warfare so powerful? Because first move advantage is so much strong with information warfare. So whenever I see different pieces of technology, that's the same rule I use. And that is what we call strategic latency. And that is, hey, which technology have the most gap between offense and defense. So I want to actually share that principle as opposed to picking on a specific piece of technology. And defects happens to be one of those technologies. Yeah, and, that, and that's honestly, that's a super important point because as you mentioned, the, the deepfake um, recognition technology is getting better and better. But the question you have to ask is, is that even going to matter? If we can even pinpoint these things, does it matter to the people who've already seen them? So, so, so uh, this, this is really interesting. So let me just like, you know, um, add a couple of footnotes to that, you know, to this like, you know, thread. So, so yes. So we've been using a lot of like, you know, data to train detection algorithms. Um, and guess what? You know, deepfake engineers uh, reverse engineering those trained data to create masking layers to their deepfake products. So this is essentially an ongoing, you know, security dilemma. And to me, this is why I want to come back to like, you know, public oversight. And this is why I think, you know, our ideals can be our best advantage because imagine if the CCP or the Kremlin get to institutionalize some of the governing principles about this type of technology. And, and I think that's when I'm gonna get essentially like, you know, goodbye and then just drive off the edge of the world. Because what's happening in Xinjiang will be the standard across the globe, right? And that is what is at stake. Let me just add one more footnote about information warfare. And uh, like, you know, I often tell my friends that, you know, information warfare is really the 21st century's WMD, weapons of mass destruction. So think about nukes. You know, nukes are really destructive, right? 
but think about essentially three aspects of you know, nuclear you know, weapons, um, R&D, uh, delivery, and then attribution. And then imagine applying the same characteristics to information warfare. Do you need to invest in ballistic missile technology to send information warheads thousands of miles away? No. How much R&D money does it take to come up with you know, some trolls and bots? Like literally nothing. And let's think about attribution and impact. So why is a nuke so dangerous? Because once it detonates, the entire area remains radioactive and inhabitable for decades or centuries to come. Information warfare is just like that, except that, except that even radiation will eventually dissipate. So with distance, radiation will essentially lessen right? Over time, over space, it becomes less and less powerful. Information warfare, when it's properly employed, it gets more powerful over time and space. And I think this is why I think, you know, we need to essentially put information warfare on the front line of great power competition, bar none. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, kind of a downer, but that's a great analogy. And I think it fits uh, so the second question, what's something about you that most people might not know? It's a really tough question uh, that I really like building uh, scale models. Long story short, my dad was in the Korean army and uh, he did really well. In fact, you know, he was in Vietnam uh, with uh, the Americans. So, you know, I have pictures uh, of my father, essentially. So like, you know, I grew up, um, you know, in that family. So I always like, you know, had this, you know, fascination with, machines and, and weapons. So I, I like building scale like airplanes and tanks, but don't Google it, please. Um, you know, I still want to keep my like, you know, clearance and everything. So I'll stop right there. No, that, that's good. There's, we have, we have a mad scientist teammate who, who is into that as well. Uh, I mean, if the name mad scientist didn't tip you off, we are a bunch of nerds. So our final question today, what is your favorite movie? Oh, well, you know, again, this is a really tough question, but um, I'll be honest with you. Star Wars Episode Four: uh, A New Hope. I I'm a hopeless romantic. What drives me uh, every day is that you know yearning for that final, like glorious, like you know noble conflict, right? And you're the underdog. So, you know, I was like really little. You know, I think you know perhaps I watched the movie again when I was a little bit older. But essentially, that shaped my worldview a little bit too much. So, like you know, hey. You know, you, you know we, we always have to, you know, fight for the underdog, right? And there is a hope and, and there'll be a, a, you know, a vent, a shaft that I can ace with a, you know, proton bomb and the whole Death Star will explode, right? And I'll come home and I'll like, you know, on medals and there'll be a big parade in celebration of this ultimate victory against this ultimate evil empire. That comes out from time to time because like, you know, again, I'm a hopeless romantic. I, I believe in our ideals, right? And, and you know, um, let me end my sort of, you know, um, narrative with this uh, historical um, anecdote that I often share with my national security, you know, friends. And that is, I've been a you know, student of the history of empires because like, you know, managing an empire is it's not easy. And this is why we've seen the most grotesque, you know, crimes against humanity, right? When we had powerful empires. And essentially it's a resource extraction machine. And, um, you know, what we have to understand is that perhaps we are the only benign empire that human history has ever seen. 
So if you think about the Marshall Plan, if you think about how we always try to like, you know, emulate our ideals overseas and so on and so forth. You know, I think there is some inherent goodness in who we are. And I think that's something we always have to remember. And being a naturalized citizen uh, gives me a lot of like, you know, comparative sort of, you know, appreciation, so to speak. And that is, you know, we have our issues, but this is essentially the most powerful democracy in the world with the most diversity, you know, internally. And we are still learning, right? We're still learning how to overcome our divisiveness. We're still bickering and trying to perfect our union. And to me, that is worth fighting for. That is worth preserving. That's very well put and maybe one of the more poignant answers to our movie question. Star Wars is one of the best uh, quintessential hero's journey. And like you said, the underdog story is is a very, very American thing. So that um, I, I understand how that hits you there. So before we end, is there anything else you want to say to the audience? And, and where can they follow your work and, and follow you online maybe? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think there's only one Duan Lee on LinkedIn. Thank God, right? Uh, so it should be fairly easy to locate me. And, um, you know, one thing that I really want to like, you know, uh, leave behind is, you know, we're not bad at this. When our nation comes together to fight against an excession threat, good Lord, you know, good luck on the other side, right? You know, think about how we came together during World War II, right? You know, think about how we came together after 9-11. When we come together, it's an unstoppable force. It just takes a little time and a little like, you know, um, arm twisting for us to get there. I'm looking at the past 10 years, we are in a much better shape right now than ever before, even compared to 16. You know, we are giving our adversaries a lot more friction uh, in terms of trying to interfere in our election. We're doing better, we're doing better. And, and you know, we still have the innovative, you know, edge compared to everyone else. So I just want everyone to remember that, you know, there are a lot of, you know, big moves being made as we speak. And I think, you know, we'll get there. We'll get there a lot sooner than most people fear. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Duan. We're so happy to have you on. Uh, and we appreciate all the great insights you've given us. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Duan Lee, Senior Director of Research and Strategy at Zignal Labs. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.